0: illustrate kind of the big point today of what the message really all, all of it focuses on. And it's an idea that is something that's very simple, but it's also something that we're very guilty of. And so uh, for this illustration, I need someone with a superhuman focus ability, concentration, the ability just to uh, shut out everything else and just focus on one thing. And I couldn't help but to think of my friend Hank Day back there, he's a GBI agent, uh, a very special set of skills there. So Hank, come on up here and help me with uh, this illustration, will you please? He's here somewhere, there he is, right there. How you doing, Hank? Thanks for all you do law enforcement, appreciate it. My brother's in law enforcement and these guys uh, don't get enough credit for sure. All right, so in this uh, illustration, what we're going to do in just a second, uh, you're going to have 10 seconds to stare at a photo. And I need you to take in as much as you can with those, in those 10 seconds, and then the picture's gonna go away. And then, falling back on your experience and just your natural, natural giftedness you know, of, of focus and concentration, you're gonna tell us the answers to some questions based upon the picture, okay? So don't help him. You gotta stay still while he's focusing and as he tries to answer the questions. So just turn around and face the screen. I'm gonna cue Cameron. It's gonna come up for 10 seconds, and then after that, uh, we'll go to the screen with the questions, all right? You ready? You're a little nervous? This is big, right? This is big stuff, right? All right, all right. Here we go. Picture. All right. Questions. All right. How many offenders were seated in the front row? We're gonna go through all the questions before we see the answers. Okay. Go ahead and answer. Yeah. Um, three. All right. Three. How many offenders in the front row were wearing jackets? One. All right, one. How many other individuals not offenders are in this picture? Two. two. Okay, two. Doing pretty good, I think, so far. And what object is clipped on the instructor's jacket? A badge or a name A badge or a name Oh, very good. Okay, let's see the answers to these questions. All right, how many offenders? You got that right, three, right? Good job. How many offenders were uh, in the front where we were in a jacket? You said one. One's right. How many other individuals? Two. Correct. 100%. Man, ID badge, you got them all. Correct. All right, there's a fifth question that um, isn't up here, but I need to ask you as well, okay? What was the idiot doing behind you? No, I'm just kidding. It's not an idiot. Michael Smith. What was he doing behind you <laughs> while you were watching this? Absolutely. I have no idea. You have no idea? You, you mean you don't know what Michael was doing back there while you were answering and you were focusing? Why not? I guess I had tunnel vision on that. Tunnel vision? You did hear some laughter, though. You did pick up on that, right? Or were you so focused you didn't even hear that? Oh, they were laughing at me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, Hank. For appreciate it. So, what's the point of that? All right. what's What's the big idea? The big idea is is this right here. This. Uh, go ahead, camera next. What you focus on determines what you miss. All right. That's a, a very, very uh, you know common sense thing, right? What you focus on determines. The things that you missed, and Hank was focused. He was zoned in. He was a little nervous, wanting to make sure he gets all the questions right. Michael was back there. I didn't see what he did, but Michael was back there doing something that I asked him to do, and and he got a, a chuckle out of some of you. And Hank was not aware of this, obviously, because he was focused in on one thing. And as we go to our text today, we're going to see that the people of Israel, the disciples, the religious establishment, were so focused in on what they thought that the Messiah should be that they missed some things they should have been aware of. They were so focused in on their expectations, and that determined some things that were critical that they missed, that Jesus is going to enlighten his disciples about today. So if you would turn over to uh, Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be in verse 27, and we're going to go through 9-1. We're not going to make it that far. This is going to be a two-parter, and we're going to um, discuss this again next week. But as you're turning there, the people, uh, the religious establishment, the elders, the, uh, the, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, these people knew that a Messiah was coming. They knew that the Messiah would be a king. They, in fact, knew that the Messiah would be a shepherd to the people of Israel. He would be a shepherd to them, and they were even aware that he was going to be a redeemer. But some way they overlooked that the Messiah would have to suffer. The Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah because they failed to see what in their eyes they had these expectations and they saw this restorer of Israel, this this person who would come back and create this national prominence that Israel knew in the times of David and Solomon and that, that this was their idea, someone who would destroy their enemies, establish the eternal kingdom. They got a lot correct, but they missed some important critical things which we see in Passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 of a suffering Messiah who would be persecuted and would be killed. And so they were focused on a Messiah, a Savior, a King who would bring victory to the people, but not one who would bring suffering, would suffer for their sins, one who would die for their sins. And so, just like the religious people of the day, needed to redirect their focus on some other areas besides just, hey, we got a king coming, we got this Messiah coming who's going to do great things for us. Just like them, sometimes we can focus so much in on what Jesus does for us that we ignore some of the things that Jesus calls us to do and asks us to the way to live our lives in light of everything that he's done. So as we read this passage, follow along, we're going to read through the whole section and then we'll talk about it. Verse 27, and Jesus went on, With his disciples to villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and by the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days would rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me... He must let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for this, my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. And what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what could a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed When he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there will be some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray and we'll look at this. Father God, we thank you for your word that reveals to us a full picture of who you are. And God, we we must confess that sometimes we like to cherry pick and pick and choose the parts of you that we like, while ignoring the parts of you that we don't like. And Father God, I pray that today as a church, as individuals, God, we will understand the full calling of what you've asked of us. And we'll comprehend more of the grace that you've enabled us and given us to enable us to live the way you've called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said last week, Mark 8 is is a turning point in the gospel. After these events, Luke literally says that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. To set his face is an idiom to mean he's resolved. He's he's headed toward Jerusalem. He's headed to the cross, his destination, his journey to Jerusalem, to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And over the next few weeks, as we look in these passages of Mark, Mark, we're going to see three times, including today, where Jesus predicts his death, where Jesus says, I'm going to die. And immediately following these, each of these times, interesting, he instructs his disciples what true discipleship is all about, what it means to truly follow him. So every time that he says, I'm going to die, it's followed by, and here's what's required of my disciples if you're going to follow me, if you want to truly know me and follow me. But disciples, as we mentioned last week, They're not getting it, just like the blind man who had blurry vision and wasn't quite seeing things, and Jesus healed him in a two-step process. We have the disciples that still have blurry vision of the true nature and the true purpose of Jesus and why he came. They're starting to begin to get it more and more, but they're not there clearly yet. But as they're walking north to Caesarea Philippi, these villages that were spread out there, about a 25-minute walk from where they were, Jesus is talking with them. And it's interesting, a a rabbi, a teacher that day, people asked them questions. The rabbi didn't typically ask questions of his followers, but Jesus turns us around. He asked them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? What's the opinions out there among the crowd, among the people? Who are they saying that I really truly am? And the disciples been to give feedback of what the people were saying. Some were saying that he's John the Baptist. What what is that about? If you think back a few chapters, back in chapter 6, when Herod had John the Baptist killed and then Jesus began to do all these miracles and these great things, uh, Herod literally thought that Jesus may have been John the Baptist reincarnated. In fact, in verse 16 of chapter 6, when Herod heard of all the stuff that Jesus was doing, uh, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And so, some people were following Herod's lead and thinking maybe this was John the Baptist to come back to get his revenge against Herod. Others were saying Elijah. And, and, you know, that wasn't really a bad opinion, truthfully. If you look in the book of Malachi and you see the prophecies, there was going to be this Elijah like figure who came as a forerunner to the Messiah. But they missed the fact that John the Baptist was that Elijah figure and Jesus being the Messiah. But people thought he's the forerunner. He's this guy coming to pave the way for this Messiah, but surely he's not the Messiah. And others thought that he was one of the prophets. And so these were all positive opinions, much like today where you ask the average person on the street, even oftentimes in other cultures that don't accept Jesus at all, and they'll still say he was a prophet, he was a good man, he, you know, he's a, a good example for us to follow, you know, uh, he's good to teach our children about, You'll get all these positive opinions about Jesus, but they stop short of who Jesus really was. They applaud him, but denying his reality of who he really is and what he came to do. And so during Jesus' time, he pulls the disciples. No one is saying that Jesus is the Messiah, except for who? Who's been, who said that, so far in Mark, Who said that Jesus is the Messiah? Anybody know? Who is it? I'm not sure, but I I hope you said the demons, right? The devils, the demons, had actually said that Jesus was Messiah. That's the only people up to this point who had pointed out that Jesus was the Messiah were the demons, and he told them not to say it. And so, in spite of the incredible miracles and healings, Jesus just did not fit the bill for who they thought the Messiah should be. And so, now he turns and he asks his disciples personally. He looks them in the eye and he says, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, true to form, right, the first guy to always speak up. Yeah, it, just a little bit of trivia. Anytime that the the, the uh, names of the disciples are mentioned in the Bible, it's always Peter first, Peter, James, and John. He was the guy who was always out there in the front making the bad decisions. But he was also the guy later on who's going to lead in turning the world upside down. And And, and so Peter is an interesting guy, and Peter is a great role model for those of us who need lots of help and lots of grace, right? Because God's still working on us. And, and so he nails it. He gets it right. He says, you're the Christ. And what, what's that? The Christ. And he's really the spokesperson here for all the disciples. And, and the Christ is, is the anointed one. He's, it's the Messiah. It's Greek for Messiah. So he understands that Jesus is the Messiah. That's huge. He's making progress. They're making incredible progress But still, they have much to learn about the Messiah's real intentions and his real ambitions. Because just like the culture of the day, they perceived the Messiah to be one who had political and national expectations that he was going to do these great things for Israel as far as physically leading them back to prominence. But Jesus, although he never ever Uh, denied someone or turned someone away for claiming that he was Messiah other than the the demons. And he didn't deny that he was the Messiah. He was unwilling to accept this title from his followers because of all this baggage and all this stuff that came with their concept of what the Messiah would be, this political figure and this revolutionary. And so the disciples anticipated, and we know this from other passages we'll see later, they anticipated following Jesus... And now that he's Messiah and they've, they've named him, you're the Messiah, their expectations is this is their road to glory. This is their road to fame and prov, uh, prov, uh, prominence. This was going to set them up really, really well. And they believed that power and privilege were their destiny. But because of this misunderstanding and they're not understanding what Jesus really was, what kind of Messiah he was, in verse 30, he continues to say, you look, don't tell people who I am yet. We're not. It's not time for this. So he charged them not to tell anyone about him. And so, even though they still need instructions, Peter's confession here is a critical turning point. And he understood that Jesus was the promised one of God. He was unique. He was special. But they were about to be utterly shocked by what Jesus was about to reveal next. This is definitely a new chapter in their education. Verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days would rise again. And he said this plainly. And Mark makes note of the fact that he says it plainly because so much of Jesus' teaching has been by way of parables, uh, by way of analogies, hidden meanings at times. And it makes note that this was said plainly, just straight out. There's no allegory here. There's no hidden message here. Straight out, here's what's going to happen to me, he tells his disciples. And his choice of of terms for himself, the Son of Man, which is one that he used over 80 times in the Gospels, was prophetic. It it, it speaks to what what Daniel and Zechariah prophesied years before. And he says that the Messiah, what did he say? Look at the verse. He would suffer many things he would be rejected by all the religious establishment of the day in Jerusalem he would be killed and he must rise again after and he would rise again after 3 days and what's it say it says he must he must do these things there was no other way there is no other way why scripture tells us from before the foundation of the world this was god's plan that he set in motion that the son would suffer be rejected and ultimately killed to redeem his people from the righteous wrath of God against us and against sin. The punishment for sin before Almighty God was death. And if Jesus was to save us, it would be necessary for him to make full payment for our sins and take the full wrath of God in our place. That was the plan from the foundation of the earth. And Peter, again, he did not like what he heard, right? What would he do? Jesus, come here for a second. Pull you away from the other guys, all right. These these guys, you know, they're not quite ready to hear what you what you said. That Jesus, you're not making sense. That's not correct. We're not going to allow that to ever happen. And he has the audacity, it says, to rebuke him. He began to rebuke Jesus for what he said. You see, messiahs don't get killed by the authorities. That's not the Messiah. A messiah doesn't get killed. A Messiah who would be a Messiah who would be killed shows himself plainly to not be the Messiah. He was a false Messiah. And also, I'm sure they were well aware, as Jesus spoke plainly, what this meant for them as well. This was a death sentence on them. If Jesus was going to die, then it was probably true for them as their followers that he would be rejected and he would die, they would probably be, would also suffer, be rejected, and die. And this was the last thing that they wanted to hear. The last thing. What you focus on determines what you miss. What you focus on determines what you miss. Why did they not see the Messiah in light of Isaiah 53? They saw the king. They saw the prominence. They saw the ruler. They saw the redeemer. They saw the shepherd. But here is the Messiah that they missed. But he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all if that's not the substitutionary atonement in the old testament times I don't know what is. How could it say it any clearer? Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before Christ. The suffering servant. But this is not the idea of the culture of who the Messiah would be. This was definitely not the idea of what the disciples thought the Messiah would be. And it's one thing to question your teacher even to disagree with your teacher, but to rebuke your teacher. That takes some boldness. And this word rebuke was the same that Jesus used for silencing the demons and judging them to be worthy of condemnation. Why did he come down so tough and so hard on Peter here? Why did he chastise him and begin to, in fact, call him Satan? Why why would he do that? Well, first of all, Peter... Expressed an understanding of a Messiah who could be a king without the cross. And even though Peter's rebuke for Jesus was out of love for Jesus, he was way out of line. And he missed that Jesus, what he would have to go through. So let's make this personal for a second, all right? If they could miss the Jesus who was clearly revealed in Scripture, Isaiah laid it out as about as clearly as you possibly could that he would take our iniquities, he would suffer, and he would die for our sins. Yet for us, I think in our cultural Christianity and the way that we want an easy, comfortable Christianity, that we can want a Savior without a Lord. That we can want a Savior without a Lord. We want the bliss of heaven without carrying the cross, which we'll talk about next week, on this earth. We want the security of eternity without having to suffer like our master suffered. In some way, we twisted it around and we've made Jesus into a Messiah that we can control, a Savior that we can control, that we can make in our image. And what do we do? We're, we're very good at looking at God's word and just removing the parts that we don't like or don't want to hear. And we argue with God or we justify our behaviors and our actions when we don't like what God says about a certain topic or subject that we may feel differently about. Well, Peter wants a king without the cross because that was a better scenario for them, right? The same way that us having a Savior without a Lord is a lot better scenario, right? I get eternity but I can live life now for the way that I want to live it. I can pretty much do what I want and have the eternal security that I'm going to be in heaven with God one day, but I'm not going to pay attention to the other things that Jesus said, like taking up my cross and following him and suffering like he suffered. And so look at verse 33. When Peter comes up and he begins to rebuke him, Jesus turns around and he rebukes Peter. And he says, turning around, so he spun to face Peter, and he sees the other disciples, and they're back there probably approving of Peter, you know, what he's doing. Thanks, Peter, for being our spokesman. We're not going to let Jesus do this. And, And he spins around, and he says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. So one minute, Peter is led by God to confess his faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and the next, he's expressing the thoughts of Satan. Wow. And Jesus Treats Peter as if he were Satan or a demon-possessed man. And this harshness is necessary. Why did Peter get equated with the devil? Why did get behind me, Satan? Why would Jesus do that? I believe the reason why is because Peter presented the same temptation to Jesus that the devil presented to him in the wilderness at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Think way back, chapter 1 here. Basically, you can be king without going to the cross is what Satan told Jesus. You can be be the king without going to the cross. The cross isn't necessary. And so Peter thought that he had a better plan than God. And he wants Jesus to fit his agenda to his mold of what he thinks the Messiah should be. But yet Jesus tells him something completely different. And verse 33 says, the second part of 33, For you are not setting your mind on things of God, but things of men. He says, you're following just the feeling of the day, the thought of the day, the spirit of the age, you're not looking at what God said. You're not seeing the full counsel of God here. See, God's way was something totally different. Man's Messiah was something totally different than God's Messiah. As I was preparing for the sermon, the verse that popped in my head at this point was Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man. But the end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right, but the end is death. And look, being real practical and very straightforward, the majority of us, when it comes down to it, we put more emphasis and more credibility into how we feel at the moment than what God says at the moment. And that's probably a a natural fleshly reaction for sure, but it's not... A Holy Spirit driven response. Fear is a natural response to bad news. Frustration is a normal reaction when things don't go our way. But it's not God's way of dealing with situations, it's not God's way of viewing the reality of this world. It's man's way, it's ways of our flesh. And so some of you may be wired more this way than others, but you just can't get past your feelings. And you see what God says, that God says this, and then you say, but I feel this way. Surely God would never, ever discount my feelings, right? God would never go against the way I feel because my feelings are my reality. And God says, look, I've given it to you in black and white. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. There's a way that seems right, but the end is death. So just fill in the blank where you've been arguing with God about something in your life. That God says, this is my plan, this is the way it should be, and you say, but that doesn't feel right, that doesn't feel good. I want to do it my way. And when it comes down to it, honestly, the disciples couldn't accept a suffering Messiah because it wasn't the best for them. It it wasn't going to end well for them, as we know, it didn't. And the DNA of sin is our selfishness. And we default to self-love, self-preservation, self-exaltation. We always default to what feels right, seems right to ourselves at the moment. And that flies in the face of what Jesus said he required. To deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow me. So they wanted to twist Jesus into their Messiah. And we try to twist Jesus into what? Making him, he's my co-pilot for the life I want to live. That's That's who Jesus is for a lot of Christians. He's over there sitting in the shotgun riding along with me. He's the co-pilot. I'm the pilot. I'm just cruising along doing my thing. Glad you're going to take me to heaven, Jesus, over there. But, you know, for, for for this life, this is my life. I'm going where I want, doing the things I want to do, and I'm just living whatever feels right at the moment. This idea of taking up our cross, this idea of living for his kingdom, not our own kingdom, what does that boil down to? I was really putting some hard thought in this, this week about that. What does this radical way of living that Jesus has called us to, what does it look like in our culture, in our day? And it's very plain in front of us. It's a life of love. Jesus created a people to be defined by love. And again, our minds drift to love being what culture tells us love to be, and the kind of love that Jesus had ultimately sacrificed everything to go to the cross for us. So love is self sacrificing. Love gives. It doesn't look for what it can always get, but it looks for opportunities to give, to invest. And so, if you hear anything this morning, hear this. The DNA of sin is my life for me. And the DNA of God's kingdom is the Holy Spirit now lives inside of you and gives you the power, the strength, and the willingness to live a life of love. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow. Jesus taught in John 13, a new command I give you. Love one another. A new command. He's creating a, new, a people that, that this is defining of them. Love one another. As I have loved you, how did Jesus love them? You must love one another. And then he adds, By this, everyone will know that you're my disciple if you love one another. You want to live radically? You want to take up your cross and follow? Love one another. I think sometimes we want these grandiose views of, like, what we want to dream about, and we just walk by the mundane, normal, ordinary ways of being radical for Christ every single day by selflessly giving of ourselves for those around us. It may be, as Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's radical. As Jesus loved the church and gave himself, husbands... Love your wives in the same way. That's why we're doing date night, and Jeremy did a great job of explaining that. It is going to be uncomfortable at times to begin to talk about things that you would much rather keep like in the shadows and keep buried and not to deal with. But are you loving your wife the way that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? I said this a few weeks ago, that the selfish, my life for me way of living is saying I'm not going to confront these things that we both know are issues in our marriage, that are are things that we know are causing our lives not to reflect the glory of Jesus the way that it should. I'm not going to do these things. And we can make all the excuses we want to make at this point, but the bottom line is we're being selfish. We don't want this to hit the fan. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want the fallout initially from it. And so we just sweep it under the rug, go on our merry way, and keep living life. Not reflecting the glory that God is calling you to reflect through your life and through your marriage. Ephesians 4.32 be kind to one another, tender-hearted why? Should we do this? Why should we forgive one another? Because God in Christ forgave you. You see you see a pattern here in scripture. Just like Jesus, Jesus lived this way. I'm his child, I'm his son, I'm his daughter. I put my faith in him not just for my trip to the next life, but for this life, I take up my cross, I live a life of love, just like God has called us to, and, we, and Jesus modeled, and I do things that are very, very down to earth, normal, mundane, like kind to one another, forgiving those who offended us and hurt us. Love. Love is our calling. Love. Love. And so what you focus on determines what you miss. We want the lavish riches of grace for ourselves, but do not want to have to make sacrifices of grace for others, do we? We want the lavish gifts of grace for us, but we don't want to turn around and make those sacrifices of grace for others. We want a Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity. Then after we have fully milked from this life the Christian spin on the American dream, then we hope that God will send a sweet chariot down and pick us up during the night in our sleep painlessly and just usher us off into bliss to our mansions on high. That's what we really want, don't we? We, we want my life for me, but then take me away painlessly, quickly, gently. You see, if we really are honest, if, if the DNA of sin is selfishness, God, my life for me, I don't need you in these areas of my life, or just enough of you to make me feel guilt-free, then we really see sin a little bit differently than we naturally do, right? Because sin is what they do at one o'clock in the morning at that bar on the way out of town. Or sin is that guy who we all know is is cheating on his wife. Or sin is that person who's so angry with life that they just let it spew out of their mouth all the time. But you see, if the DNA of sin is selfishness, then it can disguise itself as religion, as a smile is even service, because ultimately it makes me feel better, makes me happier, makes me just get by, makes my life more comfortable, and it's ultimately still all about me. Verse 35, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. crown without the cross you don't see it do you what you see the crown you see is a crown of thorns and a cross where do we get this type of ability to love I I promise you I can't muster it up right most days I go through my life pretty content with just doing the bare minimum and feeling like I've done enough for God. God, you, you've done. Where, where do I get the ability to really love sacrificially? Well, the easy thing would be at this point to use guilt, legalism, manipulation. But that's not God's way of doing it. In fact, if you walk out of here today feeling, oh, I'm such a terrible, terrible Christian. You've missed why Jesus came in the first place. It comes from knowing God. Let me say that again, because it's so churchy, knowing God, but it comes from knowing God. It comes from seeing the awe of God. And unfortunately, for a lot, that only happens on Sunday. The only time that you really are awestruck by God is on Sunday when you think, "Yeah. That is what this life is about. But then Monday rolls around and it's right back to your normal routines that are really pretty much not bad necessarily, but they leave God out of the picture. And so we've got to fall back on our definition. If sin is selfishness, it's ultimately a life that says, I don't need you, God. Let me live life my own way. And so the more thankful we are, for God's love, the more joy we will find in giving that joy away to other people, that that love away, that grace away to others. And so it comes down to our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow believers. Not just a Sunday activity, but a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday thing. We come back on Sunday and we celebrate the grace of God again. And like Peter, we know that there's sin that we need to confess and selfishness we need to confess. But you know what? We don't have to wait till Sunday to do that because we've been doing that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And we're living, as mentioned twice already, with we're preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're loving Christ, basking in his grace. And it's a lot more natural to begin to give that away to other people. When that's happening in our own life. So, what are you missing? What do you focus on? And what are you missing? Are you focusing on, I'm glad I got Jesus for eternity. I'm glad I have Jesus. I am glad I have Jesus for eternity, but not at the expense that eternal life starts in the here and now. And God didn't give you the Holy Spirit just so you could feel better on Sundays. God gave you the Holy Spirit to empower you, to use the gifts that he's given you to live every day for his glory and for his kingdom. And as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it should be our prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, right here in this little spot of earth that God has given me stewardship over. Your kingdom come, You will be done in these moments, in these spots, as it is in heaven. That's a radical life. It is. It's a radical life. It starts with creating some habits, some routines that are built around Jesus. If you walk out today and and nothing really in your mind begins to change about the way you're living your life, It probably won't be any different next Sunday. But if you allow the Holy Spirit to say, here's some things I need to change, some priorities that need to be redirected, some time that needs to be allotted differently, some people I need to probably move away from, and some people I need to move closer to, and we start to make these decisions, we're rearranging our life. And we begin to let Jesus just saturate us. And it's not pulling away from the world. We're in the world, Jesus said, but not of the world. We're able to share his glory because it's coming out of this heart of gratitude, this heart of love for the Savior. And it spills out to all those around us. Let's pray. God, it's only your grace that enables me to lose myself and love sacrificially because that's not something I want to do. And Father God, I pray that you will allow us to just sit at your feet to know you, to allow our lives to be centered around your goodness and your grace. And God, help us not to be content with just solely focusing on what we want from you. That God, help us to see what you require of us that you've given us everything we need to do that, to live a life of love. And God, I pray that today won't just be another Sunday that we check off our list that we completed, we attended church. God, may today be a defining day for us where we begin to rearrange and restructure and change some things about our lives where we live for your glory and your honor. God, for those who are in painful relationships, difficult marriages, and they're having a difficult time of loving or being loved, God, I pray that you will allow them to see the picture of you turning your face to the cross. Something that you knew would be painful, that would be awful, that your Father, that Jesus, would turn your back on you, but for the joy set before you. You endured the cross, suffering the shame. And God, may that be our attitude, that you will reward those who earnestly and diligently seek you. I pray grace on the lives of those who are struggling. God, I pray for grace on those who need to confess sin right now, that they will just lay that at your feet to to allow you and your grace to remove the guilt that you took on the cross for them and the pain that they carry around of hurt relationships and difficult people in their life who have done great damage to them, God, and me. they, like you on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. God, allow them to lay that down today. We love you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. May we bask in that this week in Jesus' name.